All right, you may be seated. Welcome to Wednesday night study. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the last book of your Old Testament, Malachi. You guys all right? Okay. So, the book of Malachi, going into uh, this final book, it is uh, an amazing book. It is uh, a book that is the last time a prophet is going to speak to the children of Israel until the next chapter in your Bible, which is in Matthew, the next book of your Bible. But that's 400 years. So 400 years from this book until God speaks again, and he spoke again as John the Baptist came onto the scene and uh, was the forerunner to Jesus Christ. Now this book, it's uh, interesting, the context of this book is that it, it is written around 400 BC. It is written around 100 years after those prophets that we just looked at, Haggai, Zechariah, and then of course uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. So those first people that went back after the children of Israel were in exile for 70 years in Babylon, and a group went back. So here's sort of how that all worked out. So this group goes back, a small group, a remnant, so about a million stayed in Babylon. About 50,000 came back. When they came back, what they found was things were in really bad shape. Uh, the temple was in bad shape. The land was in bad shape. And yet God brought them back to, first and foremost, to rebuild the temple. Because it all started with God being the center of everything that they did. So the worship of God, the centrality of God, that was essential to the success of the nation. And this nation would understand that because their failure to keep God in the center caused them to deteriorate to the extent to where they were taken captive. The reason they were taken captive was not so much because there was another nation that was stronger than them, because that other nation had more weapons or were strong. It, it was simply and solely because God was not protecting them anymore because they had left God and walked away in disobedience. And so they were taken captive. The point of their captivity was that God was working in them to show them that they need to be right with him. And sometimes for us, we know the only thing that gets our attention sometimes is that we go through difficulty or hardship. And so the, it was like that for the children of Israel. So when they came back, they were all fired up. As you can imagine, being in captivity for 70 years um, wouldn't be the greatest thing. So they came back, they were excited, they were encouraged, and they were riding that wave of excitement until it got hard, until it got difficult. They were being attacked um, more spiritually, but they're 
uh, were those who were kind of coming against their rebuilding of the temple. And so the prophet Haggai came to encourage them. The prophet Zechariah came to exhort them, basically saying, get this done because the work that you're doing is so important that it resonates into the eternal future. Their rebuilding of the temple was necessary for the Messiah to come back, Jesus, because Jesus was going to come to the temple. So they had to have a temple. They didn't realize all the ramifications. So what happened was, after they were encouraged to rebuild the temple, they did. And then after that, so now we're looking at about 100 years later, and they are in a condition now where they are backslidden. And that's really the theme of the book of Malachi. They, they were in a backslidden state. And so what we're going to find in this book, there are, are seven issues that we're going to look at in these four chapters. Uh, Lord willing, tonight we'll hit five of those issues in the first two chapters. And as I say that, you can, you can see how the implications of what is being said here and the instructions given to the children of Israel are, are so important for us in our day and age because there is a tendency that we all have to backslide. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 14 says that a backslider is filled with his own ways. So backsliding is what happens when God moves from the center of our life. And when God moves from the center of our life, what happens is then we become more filled with our own ways. And that's why the Bible tells us that to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Because we can't follow ourselves and we can't follow him at the same time. Those two things are uh, completely contrary to one another. So as we get into this book, we're going to look at seven things that are issues in regards to our backsliding. So let's just jump right in. The book of Malachi. So verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi's name means my messenger. His uh, biography is very unclear in the Bible. We don't get very much information about him. In fact, it's, it's possible that Malachi is not even his name. That's just a, a title for what his job was. So we're not really clear much about who he is, but I kind of like that because it just gets down to the fact that it's not about him, it's about the message that he's conveying. And notice this message that he's been given. It's, it's a message from the Lord. And this message from the Lord is described as a burden. And I, I think that's interesting, the way that's described as a, a, a burden. It gives us a, a feeling of a heaviness. And when we come to the things of the Lord and we look into the, the pure truth of God's word, 
then you kind of get a, a, a weighty feel that this is, is not reading, learning about, or getting into just something of an earthly nature, but this is something from the very throne of God. And this was the weight that Malachi was feeling. And as he's given this word, he starts off with, in verse 2, this is what God is saying in the first person through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. So that's his message to them. I have loved you. And their answer or response to that is very interesting. And we're going to see this type of thing throughout the whole book. He says, I have loved you, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? So the first issue that we're finding in regards to their backsliding and in regards to our own backsliding this may be the core of backsliding is when we question God's love. They were questioning God's love. Malachi says, I have loved you, speaking for God. And they say, yet you say, in what ways have you loved us? This is when we start questioning God's love. This is a sign that Satan is beginning to mess with us to bring us away from the truth. And usually, when we think like this, when we say, well, what do you mean you love me? It's usually because we're thinking about something that is not happening or something that we don't like in our life that doesn't align with our view of the way that we think God should work in our life. So when there's a difference between the way we think God should work in our life versus the way God is actually working in our life, we will be tempted to question God's love for us. And when we begin to question God's love for us, then we get into, uh, or we're tempted to go into a downward spiral of backsliding. How do we combat that? The Bible says to take every thought captive, what? To the obedience of Christ. The Bible says that we are to put on our helmet of salvation. This is a, a weapon of warfare that we have against the attacks of Satan to cause us to think incorrectly. So we have a tendency to think incorrectly if we're not centered on what God is saying. My two-year-old son likes to walk around with a trash can on his head. And he says, hat, hat, hat. And when he does that, it reminds me of how we can often do the same thing when we're not thinking about the things of the Lord. We replace the helmet of salvation with the trash can. And our thoughts are filled with trash, and that's probably what it would look like. So fortunately, I get that illustration quite a bit. So now, as they start to question God, and just kind of get the feel of this too, that 
these are people that would, they would know the history of their forefathers, of their sins. They would also know about what God has done in their midst, the miracles and the amazing things. But they just couldn't get the fact that God loved them. And maybe part of that was because of the difficulty that they were having, maybe because they were taken captive. And sometimes as children of God, one of the things that God does is he chastens those in who he, he loves. And that chastening of God is so that we will be in a better condition and state with God. That's where the, the chastening is. So it's kind of like when we start to get off track, then God will chasten us because he knows where that is leading. It's important that we listen to that. And we don't just continue on a path away from the Lord and ignore it. So they have, you can get a feeling of they have an attitude. In what way have you loved us? They're saying. Was not, here's, here's, a, here's this amazing statement. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? So it's going back into the book of Genesis and these two brothers who were twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. And they were battling in their mother's womb. And the Lord said, there are two nations inside of you raging against each other. And as they were born, Jacob was the heel catcher. So he would just lock on to Esau's heel. And he was, that was a, a just sort of typical of his behavior and his attitude of one who was looking to usurp or looking to manipulate things to get his way. And as the story develops, we see that Esau actually came to a place where because he was the firstborn, he was entitled to the birthright. And he gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup, indicating that his heart was more inclined to serve himself than it was to serve the Lord. And he considered the privileges of the birthright, which would be mainly spiritual privileges that he didn't consider those as important to him and so much so that he saw the need of good soup or good stew as more important than the spiritual birthright. And so the birthright went to Jacob. And so Jacob, it was through Jacob's sons that the nation of Israel was birthed, the 12 sons of Jacob. And so this is what this is pointing to in what they were saying. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that that can be a disturbing statement. Does God 
have certain people that he hates and certain people that he doesn't hate? This was actually quoted in Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, as this is being quoted, we get a little more detail about what this is all about. But here's, here's a couple things that will help us. So whenever you read something in the Bible, you have to, have to say, well, what does that say? Okay, this is a pretty clear statement that's being said here. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. So then the question is, does God hate people and then love other people? And then the question is, is if you look at the book of Romans chapter 9, it says that he loved Jacob and hated Esau from the womb. So then, then you'd have to say, well, that means that God hates the unborn and because there are, in, in this context, there are more Esau's than there are Jacob's as far as what they represent. So uh, more people that reject God than uh, receive God, then, then God hates majority of unborn babies. But then you say, well, doesn't the Bible say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? And doesn't the Bible say that God is love? And so and then we try to reconcile, how, how is that, that there's a possibility, if I understand this in one sense, there's a possibility that there are people a lot of people, the majority of human beings that are actually made by God without any capacity to choose him or know him. So this is what a Calvinist would say. This is what a certain doctrine that's called Calvinism would say developed after John Calvin. And it would, it would say that God actually makes people that have no say or choice and they are destined to go to hell no matter what. That they don't, they're not, they don't have the capacity to change that. But then there are other people that the elect people that they have that opportunity to go to heaven and they don't have a choice not to do that. So that's the doctrine when you break down Calvinism. So there seems to be some things that don't really square away in that understanding about God being loving, but also there are people that he makes to go to hell, especially if you understand what the Bible says about hell and teaches about hell. So that doesn't seem like a loving God that would make people in his image that have no ability to do anything different but to be in torment in hell for all eternity. That's what Calvinism says. So might there be something else? Well, yes. If we look at this now and we start to understand 
there's a difference between a literal statement and an idiom or an idiomatic statement. An idiomatic statement is a statement that's made using some terminology and phraseology that's familiar to people to help them understand a point. So if you would say, I was going to go to church tonight, but I got cold feet. Well, in this weather, you know for sure you wouldn't be getting cold feet. When we say that, that means that we got nervous or we chickened out or something like that, right? So this, if this is an idiomatic statement, is there anything else that would give us a little more information about that? Is there another way we can interpret this statement? And there is. In the book of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26, it says this, and this is Jesus' own words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus saying that the only way to follow him is to hate your mom and dad? That's what it says. And to hate your wife and to hate your children? And your own life, does it say that? It does say that. But then we have to ask ourselves, does it mean that? And does that connect with and flow with the understanding that we have in the Bible? Does it conflict with other verses or not conflict? So we know that conflicts with everything that we know about Christ, everything we know about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments to honor your mother and father. We know that if you're a husband, you're to love your wife and and your wife's to love your, you're to love your children, you're not to hate. So you know that can't be, you're not supposed to hate your family. And that's not a requirement to follow Jesus. I got to hate my family to follow Jesus. So what, we, what we're finding here, even from Jesus's own words, is this is an idiomatic statement, meaning it's a statement made to help us understand the contrast of Jacob and Esau and to help us understand that God did choose the nation of Israel and he does love the nation of Israel. But then we don't have time tonight. If we look in the book of Romans at chapter 9 verse, what we find is that he loves them in a very specific way in that he chose them to bring about the Messiah through their nation. And so we get this understanding that he loved them so much and it was demonstrated by the fact that he brought together this nation and he kept together this nation because eventually they would be the nation that would bring forth the Messiah. So in that sense, so now we're not, we're not looking at, I don't believe this is a sal salvation issue. 
It's more of a service issue. So when, when we talk about these things in regards to God's choosing the nation of Israel, we have to look at the, the context and all the things surrounding that. And when it says, Jacob, I have loved, the context is he's telling the children of Israel, look, I've, I've loved you. And I can prove my love for you because of how I kept you together as a nation. And even before that, how I formed you. And at this point, it's before the Messiah, of course. So they, they may not connect the whole thought and idea. But what he wants them to understand is, is in the context then of Romans chapter 9, is he wants them to understand what he said in Romans chapter 9 was even if you're a genetic descendant of Abraham, meaning if you're a Jew by genetics, that you're, that doesn't make you a true Jew because all true Jews come to Jesus by faith. And that was the whole teaching of Romans chapter 9. It was all about coming to God by faith and not by works, not by a system, not by tradition. And that was what Jesus was, was sort of debunking is that idea that you can come to faith, one, by your genetics. So you're born a Jew and, and many Jews feel like because I'm Jew, then I'm saved. And Jesus said, you have to come to faith like everybody and all true children of Abraham, the father of faith, all of them are those who come to me by faith because Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So the whole thing was trying to get them to understand that. So suffice it to say, we can look at this and say, what's really going on is that God had a plan a specific plan for the nation of Israel who came through Jacob. And so they were, in a sense, they had a, a really unique and amazing role that God had for them. So in verse 3, he says, Esau I have hated. And then he says, and laid waste to his mountains. And his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So what's being said there is God is telling the children of Israel, look, you've come from Jacob. And because you've come from Jacob, then I had a special unique plan for you. And that plan was to form a nation through the sons of Jacob. And through my dealings with you, as you formed a nation, you would be a testimony to the world that there is one true God, and the one true God is the God of Jacob. And yet, then the descendants of Esau, who are called the Edomites, they went and settled in what we would now know as the area of Jordan, so when we went to Israel last year, or was it last year and a half ago or something, we went to this area in Jordan. We went to Petra. And it's interesting because our guide, who was Jordanian, told us 
that his nation is very safe. They don't get attacked because in the Middle East, you're always thinking, is it okay to go there or not? Are they gonna, is it dangerous? But nobody wants anything that they have, he says, because they don't have any resources. That's what he said. He said, we're safe because we don't have anything that anybody wants. And then when you go there, you realize it's, it's just desert. They don't have resources. And so the reason that happened with Esau is, or the Edomites, which come from Esau, is their true heart of disobedience to God was revealed over and over again as they began to form as a nation. And it culminated when they attacked the Israelites who were their brothers. And so there is judgment that's being spoken of here on them. And there are no more Edomites left. There are no more descendants of Esau left. Can anybody tell me the last Edomite? It was in Jesus' time. Herod. So Herod, in, e in Jesus' time was an Edomite. And one of the things that he tried to do is to, well, he did do, he killed all the babies that were under the age of two, the male babies because that were Jewish, because he was trying to make sure that the Messiah, who he heard was here, would be cut off. So he tried to kill the potential Messiah. And he was the last Edomite. So they're, they're, they live in a wilderness. When you go there, they're, just, they're cave dwellers. They are nomadic. There are no resources there. They, it's a very desolate place, and that's what's being described here. But then it says in verse 4, it says, Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So God's answer in their first question about questioning the love of God that he has for them, he's, he's saying, well, compare where you're from, Jacob. And remember, they were back in the land. Their temple is functioning. Their priesthood is functioning. Um, the promises of God that he's given them are being answered and all the meanwhile, they are able to know and see that the Edomites and the brother of Jacob who came against the Israelites, they are living in a very desolate land and they are being cut off. And there is no resurgence where they would, you know, do really well and then do, you know, do really bad like the children of Israel. But they are just very desolate even to this day. And so here's the first 
indictment against the children of Israel and the explanation of their backsliding. And it comes because of their doubting of God's love. And God's answer back is to look at how God has worked in their midst. And that's how God encourages us when we're tempted to doubt God's love for us. He would say for us, look at my son that died for you. And we don't need any other information because it was at the cross where the greatest demonstration of God's love for us could ever be seen and known. That should answer all of our doubts, questions, and concerns about how God feels about us. That he is willing to send his own son to die for us. So when we're getting messed up about thinking about God loving us and doubting his love and questioning his love, the answer is to go back to, his, to the cross and go back to remember what Jesus did. And then remember our future. Remember that our sins are forgiven. Remember that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember that we have a future in heaven. Remember that he's given us the down payment or the guarantee of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Just remember all that he's done. And when we begin to learn how to do that, then we're taking those thoughts captive. And then now we're able to rejoice in the Lord and be thankful always. Then what does he say? Look at um, verse 6. So verse 6, we get the, the second issue. And the second issue was their bad attitude towards giving to the Lord. So if you start to question God's love for you and that becomes an issue, then what happens next is you're not going to want to give to the Lord, whether that's your resources, whether it's your finances or whether it's time, whether it's your energy. When you start to doubt God's love, then your giving to the Lord will begin to suffer. So watch what happens. In verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. So it's a very strong statement. And it's interesting because in our day and age, that is not as strong as a statement because it's, in many cases, it's, it's accepted and encouraged to not honor your mother and father, to not honor your parents. But in their culture, in their society, which it should be in in society, but often is not, is an ex the importance, the value of honoring your parents. And so he's using that as an analogy. And he says, as you know, the son honors his father's servant, his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence so now you see these issues cropping up which sure seems like it comes because they're doubting God's love so it's almost as if they feel 
entitled to disrespect God. Like they, they, it's like they have lost their reverence for him because they're upset at the way things that have gone for them. And so there's not honor. There's not reverence. They've lost that fear of the Lord. And then it says, to you priests who despise my name. So these are the religious leaders. And they are despising the name of God. Yet they are saying, in what way have we despised your name? Isn't that interesting? So it's almost like, we're not doing that. What do you mean we're despising your name? So this constant challenging, it's, it's like, you know, if you ever talk to somebody about, you know, they're, they're living a sinful lifestyle and you, you say something about that and you say, what do you mean? I'm not doing that. Well, you're not perfect either, that kind of attitude, but they're saying that to God. So they say in uh, verse seven, he explains what they're doing. And he says, you offer defiled food on my altar. In what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. So there's this, this practice that God had ordained with the Jews where they would offer things to him. And their attitude towards God had gotten so irreverent, but what's interesting is they were still doing it, right? So they're still doing offerings, but yet they were doing it in a contemptible way or a, a disrespectful way, or a way of despising God. So in verse 8, he explains that. He says, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? So they were, they were still giving offerings, but they were giving him the worst of their stuff. They were giving the stuff that they almost were going to throw out anyway. And, and what God is saying is, is this is a way you're showing and displaying of what you really think about me. Because if we really think correctly about the Lord, we will give him the best of our stuff, the first of our stuff. Not the leftover stuff, not the stuff that we hope goodwill will come and take, and if they don't, we'll just take it to the church. But see, that was a sign. That was a sign that they became selfish. That was a sign that they didn't trust the Lord. That was a sign that they didn't honor the Lord, that they just were hoarding everything for themselves. And they'd just give God just a, a little something, and it was the worst of what they had. And God calls that evil. And then it says, or, or God says, offer that to your governor. 
And it's a way for them to understand that they would think highly of their governor. Which at this time was a, a Persian government because the Persians were in control of the world, the Medo-Persians at this time. But nobody would ever think of giving to their governor, a high-ranking official, something like trash. He says, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord? That's not a good way to make a first impression. Right? Say you're going to meet the governor of Texas and you wrap up your dirty, holy socks and you say, hey, look what I got you. And he opens it up. He's going to remember you, but not in a good way. He's going to think, what was that guy or girl thinking? He would think that you didn't like him. So he says in verse 9, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hand. So he's asking them to repent, to consider what they're doing. And then he says, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? so that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. You know what he's saying? He's saying the priesthood had gotten to a point where they wouldn't do anything for the Lord unless they got paid for it. They wouldn't even shut a door. And this is what they're being called out on. They had gotten to a place, the priesthood had gotten to a place to where they were felt so entitled, instead of feeling so privileged to serve the Lord, they felt so entitled and they got so complacent and they didn't have any reverence or fear of the Lord. And so they weren't going to lift a finger unless they got paid for it. And the Bible tells us it's better to be, I think it's Psalm 84, a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than anything else. It's the, the privilege of doing anything for the Lord, but they lost all that. So he says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so here we have a tipping of the hand of the gospel. See, because at this time, God was exclusive to the nation of Israel. And what God is saying, that there's going to be a time where there's going to be a worship of God 
to the, by the Gentiles and of all nations. And this is pointing to the work of Jesus when he first came and then the commission of the church to go and make disciples of all nations. And then in verse 12, he says, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food, it's contemptible. And the way they were saying that is by allowing people to bring their trashy things to honor the Lord with. And when it says profane, that word profane, that word means to treat something holy as common, to have no reverence for it, no respect for it. A way we might consider that is how we handle the word of God. If we have the word of God and have several words of God, several Bibles in our homes or wherever it may be, and we just treat it like it's just the same as a common magazine that we have in our house or a, a secular book that we have in our house. It's the same thing. And so in verse 13, he says, you say, oh, what weariness, and you sneer at it. So that's the way they looked at serving the Lord. They're like, burned out they're weary and tired they just said we don't enjoy this we hate this this is a burden where does all this stem from it stems from the doubting of god's love for them and then the work that they were doing was a work in the flesh and it wasn't a work in the spirit and it was not a work that was motivated by the love of god and so our service to the Lord should be such that we are overwhelmed by the love of God and we have to do something with that. And when we, whenever we start to serve the Lord by checking off the boxes or um, that could be just showing up at church, but we're just thinking it's just about being here, but it's not about being here, it's about worshiping God. We have to be very careful about that that it doesn't become mechanical and ritual and we don't think we're just checking off the box or getting credit, but we're here because God is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of everything that we have. And as long as we have breath, we need to use it to praise the Lord. But you can see that what happens, the difference in, in how for you and I, we can often get into this uh, place or condition where we feel like, well, I'm not getting anything out of this. I show up and I do the thing and nobody says, great job, and I'm not getting any of this. I don't get paid for this. I don't. And we go down this list and you, you have to say, wait a second. It's better be to be a gum scraper for the Lord. That's an honor and privilege. If you can scrape gum off the floor for the Lord, that is the highest work. Anything we do for the Lord is the highest work. But when we start to doubt the love of God and then we serve God in our flesh, then everything becomes a problem. People become a problem, which if you're in ministry, people are the ministry. 
So that's a problem. People become a problem. You hate the way everything's done. You hate the way people look. You hate the way the church looks. You hate everything. But that, that was the attitude. Now, there's a temptation that we see in our culture where people can be in this condition where everything's a bummer, everything's, they, they hate everything, but then you use fleshly means to try to excite yourself and try to excite people. Because now God's not enough. So now you got to get everybody excited and you got to really, you know, up the bar for entertainment and to get people coming back and get people tithing. And so you do all this stuff and it's, it really cannot be the Lord at all. But you're calling it a church, you're calling it the Lord. But when it's really the Lord, you don't need to do any of that. There's nothing greater, there's nothing more powerful, there's nothing stronger, there's nothing more satisfying, there's nothing more moving than God. So he says, you're sneering, you're saying what, a, what, what weariness this, this is, and you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick, and thus you bring the offering. He says, should I... Accept this from your hand, says the Lord, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. What he's saying is when you have a male, a male would be the most expensive offerings that you can be, and you're making a vow, but... When it comes down to it, you're really giving him the cheapest or least expensive and keeping the most expensive for yourself. And then notice this. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So let's get a little more of that. Let's get a little more this great king in our midst. And it's a matter of you and I acknowledging the greatness of God. And that's one thing I just love about being with you guys is just loving God with you. Thinking about the greatness of God, studying about his ways, worshiping him the way he deserves to be worshiped putting him and acknowledging him in his rightful place. And so next we see the third issue in regards to backsliding. So issue number one is doubting the love of God. Issue number two was our bad attitude towards giving to the Lord. Number three is devaluing God's word. So it says, and now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you 
and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. And so you can imagine now the the priests, those who were looked at as the representations of God's work and the people who were looked at as examples that now they, they didn't even hear from the Lord and they didn't take to heart the things of the Lord. What does that mean? They just blew it off. They didn't take it seriously. They're all caught up in their selves, in the world, in selfishness. They are going through the motions. People would come and give offerings and they would receive these terrible offerings that they're actually not supposed to do. And the Lord is, is saying, you're not, you're not hearing from the Lord. You're not hearing his word. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts. You know what that is? Refuse. There's an emoji that you can have that's brown. That's what that is. Now, this is, this is pretty heavy, isn't it? What this is saying is how disgusting what they were doing was. And this wasn't something that God wasn't aware of and didn't notice. This is not something they blew, that God blew off. But see, when I read that, that sends a little shiver up my spine. Because we also live in a a day and age where people will do things that are not of the Lord and disgrace his name, but call it the things of the Lord. We live in a day and age where that's celebrated, where that becomes uh, really uh, the, the face of church in America is in many cases is people that God would say that I would rub a brown emoji on your face because what you're doing is sickening and you're compromising the truth. You're leading people astray and this is serious. And because of that, this, and God's trying to express how serious this is because it's crazy to me to see the things going on out there in the name of God, to see what churches are doing, to see how they're taking advantage of people, to see how there's no reverence for God or no respect for God, and they have the idea of the, the end justifies the means. So if, if they have an end that they plan in mind, it doesn't matter how you get there. So the church looks more like the world than it does like heaven. And it's sickening, and it should sicken us too. But you know, the Bible says in the last days, people will heap up teachers for themselves who will tickle their ears. In other words, people like it. The reason that there are churches like that is because people like that. People want themselves to be glorified. They want to be told that they don't have to repent of their sins. They don't have to submit to God, that they can live however they want and uh, reject God's way of salvation 
and yet still be okay with God. And that's just simply not true. And so to do that, you can't teach the word of God. You basically have to have your Bible and maybe have a verse and then close your Bible and then talk about the verse for another 30 or 40 minutes. But really, you're just talking about yourself in most cases. A good way to know if, if someone's falling, a pastor, a church, or a person is falling into this trap is, is their view on God self-centered? Is one trying to maintain themselves and maintain their lifestyle or are they repenting and living for God, which is the opposite direction of the world? But any teaching that centers on man being the center and um, encourages man in things like success and achievement and be the best you can be in this world and all these type of things when the Bible simply says the opposite of that. In fact, sanctification in the Bible means separation. It doesn't mean isolation, but it means separation. It means we're in the world, we're engaging the world with the truth of God and with the gospel, but we're not becoming the world because we've been delivered out of the world. And if we go back into the world, it's like a dog, what? Yes, returning to his vomit. So he says in verse 4, Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi, Levi was a, a priest, my covenant with Levi, the first priest, that it may continue. So God had a covenant with Levi, and it says, says the Lord of hosts, he says, my covenant was with him. It was one of life and peace. So in other words, God's covenant with Levi was one of life and peace. It was one of Levi, you represent me and follow me and obey me. And you're going to be doing that as an example to the people. So we're going to be working together, God and Levi and as we're working together, as we're going through honoring, worshiping God and doing the things that God prescribes, then the people would see that and they would be blessed. Why? Because God would be the center. Because they would be correctly oriented to God. And that's really what it's all about. It's about being correctly oriented to God. It's about being in fellowship with God and walking with God. And when that happens, there's life and peace there. So what does that also suggest? When we go away from the things of God, there's no life there and there's no peace there. So he says, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth. That's important. The law of truth was in his mouth. He spoke the truth. And injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. You see that? So backsliding is when 
when we devalue God's word and we live also in a culture that devalues God's word so much to the extent where our society and in many churches, they rejoice at iniquity. They rejoice at iniquity. In in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. So when you devalue God's word, you embrace everything and you don't, you say it's there's no such thing as right and wrong and God, it's just all love. But there's no love without truth. They go together. They one is not at the expense of the other. So in verse 7 it says for the lips of the priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. So what should people be seeing and seeking from the priest, or to put it in our context, from church leaders or pastors or whatever? They should be hearing the truth and seeing the truth. And when they do, then many will turn and many will walk in the truth. And that's what it's all about. That's the whole purpose now of the church. It's the truth. So a big role that leaders in the church have are to be watchmen. Not psychologists not people who are sociologists, but watchmen. What does that mean? That there are to be those in the church that are watching these false doctrines that are coming into the church. And because of the failure to watch and the compromise that we see in many different areas in the church we see the church is just becoming like the world in many cases so in verse 8 he says but you have departed from the way and you have caused many to stumble at the law you have corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts therefore I also have made you contemptible, meaning despised, and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. That means basically they were respecting people more than the truth. They were respecting the ways of the world more than the ways of God. And so verse 10, now we have the fourth area involved in backsliding, and it's a diminished view of marriage. 
It's amazing how these things all go together. So verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. This was something prohibited by God in regards to the children of Israel. And the prohibition was that they wouldn't marry those that were they would be unequally yoked with, especially in regards to those who are worshiping pagan idols, false gods, foreign gods, and that's what they were doing. So the institution of marriage, the sacredness of marriage that you find in the Bible, that you find in the eyes of God, it was looked upon as we, it doesn't matter, we can do whatever we want. And so they were marrying those who had foreign gods. And in verse 12, it says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In other words, they were still doing the religious activity of offering to the Lord, but they were completely disobeying the Lord, flagrantly disobeying the Lord by marrying foreign gods. So what does the Bible tell us? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14, it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In other words, if you're a believer, you're not to marry an unbeliever. That's considered unequally yoked. And then uh, there's a reason for that. It says because what fellowship does unrighteousness have with righteousness and light with darkness? And so there's the tendency when someone is unequally yoked in marriage, it's usually going to be the one that is more worldly that is going to have more of an influence on the other. Not all, always, but it's going to be very difficult for the believer in that marriage to stay strong and grow in their relationship with the Lord. Not impossible, but extremely difficult. And not only that, when you really get into this a little deeper, you find that it really affects the offspring as well. So if you're in a household and you're a child of parents that one's a believer and one's not, it's difficult. And typically the child's going to go 
the direction of the parent that is not a believer. Not always. But what this goes back to is trusting the Lord in something so important like marriage and especially to realize and understand that marriage has been given by God to us to be a blessing and to be something amazing, but also to understand that in that marriage, it's to be a picture of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5 tells that. The marriage pictures the gospel. So, of course, Satan's going to attack the marriage. Of course, Satan's going to lead people to devalue marriage, to compromise in marriages, because when they do that, it dishonors God. So in verse 13, it says, And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. So because of the declining spiritual condition, they didn't value marriage, didn't look at it, at it as sacred. And so the men in particular here being pointed out, they would just get rid of their wives when they didn't like them anymore when they got irritated, or when something else better came along. Because their view of marriage was so low, and the reason for that was because their view of God was so low. Because marriage is something that is sacred in God's eyes. Marriage is high and holy in God's eyes. And so when we have a diminished view of God, we all will have a diminished view of marriage. And so they were just um, going through marriages like they were going through dinners. Like they were going through the days, just going and marrying whoever they wanted. They didn't even care who they wanted to marry. But you know what this is. And obviously we have a problem in our day and age with divorce. But what this comes down to in a society or say an individual if our worldview is an individualistic worldview, meaning my role and meaning and understanding of my life in this world is to be self-actualized. Self-actualized means it's for me to have my best life now, to, for me to fulfill my maximum potential by being happy. So happy, happiness becomes the goal. If you have a worldview that's individualistic, that, that it's all about me, 
and it's all about attaining the highest me possible, then the measure of that is happiness. So what happens if you're in a marriage and you're not happy? See you later. No problem. That, we live in a society like that. No sacredness, no value. But see, when we have that mentality, do you know Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein had that mentality? Jeffrey Epstein, the guy who uh, took advantage of many young ladies and had an island where he built this island where he would bring all these famous people out to have sex with young girls that were being sex trafficked. And you know what he said? He said, he said, when I'm on this island, I feel fully myself. That's the, the mentality. Like to, so he didn't have any moral restraints, even if it meant sex trafficking young girls, because what was most important was his self-actualization and being the most self that he could be, which means that he wanted to fully do whatever he wanted to do. But that's the mentality. And sometimes people don't connect the dots of when we say happiness is the goal, then we're putting ourselves in the center and then we will do anything that it takes to be happy, even if it means hurting a lot of people. It doesn't matter as long as we're happy. This is what goes on when we are not honoring God in our life. So in verse 15, he says, but he did not make them one having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. So that was important. And then he says, not let anyone deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Verse 16, and the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so the last thing in verse 17 is this twisting of God's word. So watch in verse 17, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? In other words, the last thing is, when we backslide, we twist God's word. And they were twisting God's word to fit what they wanted. And so they were, were saying things that were evil, they were saying that was actually good. And we see this in the church. We see this with the LGBT issue. This, that's a big, big one right now. But, but the church is embracing that and saying that's good. And yet the Bible says that anybody that's caught up in that lifestyle, like any lifestyle that is a lifestyle that is against the Lord must repent and receive salvation in the Lord. But when the church says that's okay, what the church is doing is saying, that that's not a sin you need to repent from. But we are all sinners. And we all need, that, that's how we come to the Lord. We repent of our sins. 
But see, there, there's in, in a day and age, like they're living in, and you see the similarities in the day and age that we live in, is they're using the Bible and they're actually saying, no, that's good. That's okay, that's good. And that's scripture twisting. So we made it two chapters. Good job, you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you'd write it on our hearts. Pray that you'd write it on our minds. I pray that by the power of your spirit, that you would transform us, Lord, through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we honor you and walk with you by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night, and we'll see you Sunday.